now the next section is where we come closer to home and we uh, you know take your uh, you know listen to your thoughts on you know how counter religions that arose uh, in uh, in india or in the hindu civilizational continuum like the nastika mathas were mm. managed and mm-hmm. uh, then once we talk about the organic counter religions uh, there are mm. you know we'll also talk about a little bit about the disguised mutants or uh, lab grown mm-hmm. hybrids like dravidianism mm-hmm. and purogami neo buddhist uh, mm-hmm. counter religious strains so probably mm-hmm. if you could just walk us through and at the same time you know if you could also see tell us about how the uh, indian you know native hindu uh scientific tradition uh in a sense it seemed to have been helped by the counter religions but uh, from when did it start you know diminishing from when uh, was it the islamic invasions specifically that created the diminishing of the hindu scientific tradition or uh was okay. it something else so i just like okay. a nice okay. this thing of you know it's basically of these two points yeah, yeah. of these two points so a counter religion always is influenced by the religion which it is countering and we see this whether it's in west asia or india akhenaten he's making an existing deity uh as his sole deity and eliminating the rest uh when the in the jewish tradition the Juda- judaism made yahweh the sole deity yahweh was part of a pantheon he was a vayu like deity of the of the earlier uh, western semitic uh, tradition so uh, it's usually the focality on one deity within the pantheon which is how it arises now uh, in say the case of the iranian the zoroastrian iranian tradition we see this process uh, happening very uh, all the steps can be seen that is the varuna like deity ahura mazda even in the rigveda varuna is addressed as dasura medhira which is a uh, cognate uh, term so ahura mazda was the varuna like deity he became the focal point and the other deities the other devas were now demonized and they uh, the deva became a negative term but at the same time he couldn't break totally from the old religion so while he said the nainhaitya the cognates of the nasatya udashwins uh, are demons he brought in haurvatat uh, and amritat two concepts the twin deities were still they were brought as uh, agents or assistants of ahura mazda so from the back door you see that some of the religions tendency the old religions tendency come back so counter religions can be seen as a spectrum as uh, the the spectrum being the degree to which they go the river starts flowing in the opposite direction uh, but uh, in the case of the buddha and uh, mahavira these two counter religions there are some unique factors now zarathustra did not call himself a god uh, he only made one god of the existing pantheon as the sole god whereas right from the beginning we see that 
in at least the Buddhist tradition, there is a focality on the human. Now, probably such focalities existed in the broader tradition that by itself doesn't make something a, folk, uh, a counter religion, like the worship of the Satvatas. In, unlike the white Indologists, I believe that the Satvata tradition predates the Buddha. So I do think Krishna and Baladeva and uh, Aniruddha, Pradyumna, they are all historical figures. But there was a superimposition of a religion onto them. That is, there were gods. The god Vasudeva was now superimposed onto Krishna Devaki Putra. And uh, some Karshana, who was in the emanation of the Vasudeva, was superimposed onto the historical figure. So uh, the Focality on human, uh, on human figures was not something new. It brought, there was a matrix, uh, there was a matrix of that in the Indo-European religions, which existed. But the Buddha, uh, he was pretty distinctive in that he tried to, he didn't try to superimpose any gods onto himself, but he put himself above them. And so he, while he may have not explicitly asked people to worship him per se, uh, in very direct terms, he, he did encourage it. And by placing himself above the gods and see, showing the gods as coming to hear his teachings or those of former uh, Buddhas, he paved the way for uh, subsuming or placing the other religion, the old religion, uh, as a layer below his. But his most subversive uh, aspect was the redefinition of terms. So like Trayvidya, he re, uh, normally it, would, it meant to the Hindu, if we want to use that term, to the Arya of that age, it meant uh, the three types of chants, the, the Riks, which were metrical chants, the Yajush, which were prose chants, and the songs, the Samans. But the Buddha totally redefined it as the special Buddhist knowledge of uh, the past and future lives and the path to nirvana and the like. Then he called his teachings and himself as Arsha. Uh, so again, he was subverting the term of a Rishi. And uh, he subverted the Upanishadic concept of the Atman as Anatta. That is, he reverted it. So the counter-religious tendency here expressed itself as redefining in often opposite ways. In the case of Anatta, the Atman was really reversed. And that's a big point uh, in his counter-religious tradition. So it was the capture and redefinition of the terms which uh, were which I think was the big driving force in the case of the Buddhist counter-religion. The Jaina situation is a little more complicated. Uh, again, you can see that their main rivals were uh, the Shrauta performing uh, Brahmanas. And there could have been an element of the Kshatriya trying to show that their intellectual tradition is... Uh, superior to that of the brahmanas. Some element of that, I, I don't want to push that too much, which was also driving both these, uh, these founders of the 
Indian counterintelligence. There was a third guy, Maskarin of the Ghoshala of the Kaushik. But uh, he was initially a partner of Mahavira, but he did not seem to go too far, though the Ajivika tradition is supposed to have uh, existed for some time. But uh, we really don't have too much material to, uh, from their side. And the China material is very partisan. It shows them in very negative uh, light. Uh, but in the case of the Jaina uh, redefinition, a lot of it was uh, focused on, again, countering the Shrauta tradition and its capacity to provide some goals. Uh, so one thing which these may have had in common with, uh, say, the Western, the, the Semitic counter-religions, uh, especially in the case of Buddhism, lesser so in the Jaina case, is some kind of utopian promise. So the way uh, it begins, the Buddha makes a very real observation. Life is full of sorrow. And I don't think anyone can deny that. And that was a true observation. And then he goes on to give an explanation for it. He says, desire is the root cause of sorrow. So in this way, it's very similar to how in the, the Occidental counter-religions, they give you they understand this thing that there is sorrow in life, or they would say life is full of inequality, like say Nabyon Mada, the new woke religion of America. It's constructed on similar principles. You, you diagnose, a, you see a real problem and you state it. And I think most people won't disagree with the problem that yes, there is life has sorrow, or maybe it has inequalities or inequities. And then they give you a cause for it. And that's where they go off the rails because the Buddha says desire is the root cause of all sorrow. Now, if you're in the mode of believing, which a lay person tends to be, uh, you may say, hey, this makes sense. You know, if I eat a lot of some oily stuff, I get some problem uh, after that in, in the with digestion, so the desire to eat the tasty stuff resulted in a health issue for me. Okay, it seems to correlate. That's how a, a person who doesn't think through all the, uh, the whole structure may easily come to the conclusion, okay, his uh, diagnosis is correct of the problem. And then he offers a solution. He says to rem remove sorrow, to remove dukkha, you need to remove desire. The karma has to be extinguished. So then, since you have been converted by the first two steps, you accept this uh, third thing. And that third solution usually has a utopian aspect to it, which uh, in the case of the Buddhist teaching and to a degree in the Jaina teaching, you may say Hindus have a proto-element of it. It has uh, some kind of utopian uh, end point. So uh, that's, uh, that's what I would term the book. And once these come about, if they existed by themselves uh, within the larger framework uh, without contravening it, I think they would have been, they would have digested themselves. Uh, like say the Mundaka Upanishad, it makes certain statements which a true Vaidika won't like. 
it calls the samhitas as lower knowledge yes. and the knowledge of atman is a higher knowledge and this is not too different from the bauda viewpoint he'll also tell you that the samhita knowledge or the whole vaidika corpus uh, is a lower knowledge and this nirvana which he is teaching is the higher knowledge but the mundaka upanishad is totally accepted and internalized because it didn't go against in a very drastic way it still accepts samskruta shruti and all as things which you have to practice whereas he explicitly went to brahmanas from the bharadwaja i think and bhargava gotras approached him and said we can set your stuff in chandas he said no no i wanted to be in the valga party so uh, there you see uh, this language distinction and that's again when you have a marker which sets you aside from the mainstream that's a very important factor in the emergence of uh, counter religion so like say in the sikh traditions the emergence of the counter aspect they were for a long time nobody really saw them as non hindus but right. once you start acquiring some markers which distinguish you from the rest of the population and you're very insistent on those markers then uh, you so that is running contrary to the to the flow or the mainstream then you start uh, branching off as a counter religion now i would say that uh, the buddhist and the jaina tradition the way it uh, evolved was there was this branching away the non acceptance of samskruta being the big point apart from the non acceptance of the shruti uh, so the non samskrutic traditions in the pali and ardhamagadi uh, it started off resulted in the schism and eventually there was a fall back because the samskruta cosmopolis could not be escaped it was only growing the horizon was only growing larger the number of people using and uh, uh, samskruta and presenting intellectual material in it was not shrinking but growing and uh, i would say that uh, that's what sort of tethered these religions to a degree back uh, to the parent so in the case of the buddhist world ashvagosha wrote his famous works in samskrita and in good kavya he was a brahmana himself and so there was a resamskritization in the jaina tradition to you see the reemergence of a samskrita tradition And, yes, and uh, Nagarjuna in the Buddhist tradition. Absolutely. So, and I, it's I, interesting that even... you should mention this because uh, hmm. the Bhakti literature, for example, the uh, traditional hymns, uh, the mm-hmm. Divya Prabandham, Nalaira Divya Prabandham, or the Tevara mm-hmm. Tiruvachagam concept, uh, the Corpus, mm-hmm. sorry, Tevara mm-hmm. Corpus, both yeah. of these eventually were Sanskritized uh, by the. Uh, ramanuja bhashyams and the various bhashyakaras yes the ubhaya or, vedanta of yeah. the, the tamil vaishnava tradition it the ubhaya itself it, the tamil is now coming back into the sanskritic tradition yes and uh, again i see it in the maharashtrian you know uh, where the uh, language of the original corpus is in the uh, maharashtri which is the local register it is being you know sanskritized using the bhakta vijayam and uh, uh, 
uh, you know. Right, right. Yes. Uh, so that's there is another interesting, interesting case in Maharashtra of the of the pastoral deities like Khandoba. So the Khandoba, uh, the original Khandoba tales are narrated by these uh, wandering narrators, the gurus, who sometimes they act out like they'll walk on all four and bark like a dog to uh, illustrate the dog of Khandoba. Uh, so it's all in Marathi, but uh, there is a Sanskrita Purana where he's now called Martanda Bhairava. And uh, it is completely Sanskritized. The war with the two uh, Asuras is presented in a very Pauranika style, which is quite different from the Gurav's uh, folk narration. So Sanskritization is an important tether. And those traditions, those counter-religious impulses in India, which failed to come back, to the Sanskritic realm uh, often diverge beyond the point of compatibility, we may say so. And the other important point is religion is marriage. So in the Jaina tradition, I think that was very important. Uh, they have several records within their own writings, and we know from modern uh, Indians that in the Vaishya communities where uh, the Jaina, Jaina Mata is uh, popular, there is marriage with those who follow the, uh, the mainstream Sanatana Dharma. So when you marry, when the marriage barrier is not there, then uh, there is a tendency for the Sanatana Dharma to come back. And you'll have hybrid households, so the divergence never goes uh, too far. Yeah, and you I can think see that... it. You can see it in. Uh, <clears throat> you could see it till uh, the 19th century and early 20th century among Sikh households, and you can see it today among Arya Samaj households. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, would you? We would. Could you uh, move on to some of the lab-grown hybrids, as I call them, like Dravidianism and the. Uh, neo Buddhist uh, tradition. I mean, I don't know whether any tradition has uh, built around them, and especially around the Dravidianist, uh, this thing there is a corpus of literature and of polemics, but beyond that, there is no ritual, there is no, you know, there is nothing much beyond the corpus of polemics on the Dravidianist side. But on the neo Buddhist side, some kind of, uh, you know, ritual and things have seemed to have been created around it. Could you just touch upon these two lab-grown hybrids? Uh, See, Dravidianism, I think I'll just be short with it. It is polemical, as you say. It is, it's just like how in uh, 1920s and 30s Germany, while this is not a precise example, but still there is some parallel. There it's all, everything is a counter-religion there, but the Christian reaction against Judaism. So it's, it's just a certain kind of uh, ethnic hate which comes out when you see one group uh, succeeding and the other not doing as well. And if there is a catalyst which can sort of tell you that that guy is really bad and he's the cause who's keeping you in this uh, low-performing state, then that's, a, that's the utopianism, which is very similar to... Uh, any Abrahamism, which promises that when we get rid of the infidel, when we get 
uh, rid of uh, the unbeliever, we will usher in this great era of uh, uh, coming of the Christ or re, uh, going to Jahannam or whatever. And uh, likewise, I think the Dravidianists and the Mahatma Phule movement in Maharashtra, I don't know if I should call him a Mahatma, but let's give him that. Mahatma is an abuse term in India anyhow nowadays. Uh, so uh, there, there, there is a, the catalyst where the English, the Justice Party clearly had English catalysis uh, in Tamil Nadu. So uh, it's not that Phule was anti-Hindu to start with. Uh, he was very much part of the uh, Peshwa uh, superstructure and he had fought against the English in the early days. And then the catalyst comes and gives you the very essentialized tenet of uh, an Abrahamism. There is a utopia once you get rid of this unbeliever who's uh, oppressing you. And I think that's all Dravidianism is. Now, in the case of Ambedkar, uh, to give him his dues, he was a guy who read widely. He had a deep hate for Brahmanas, uh, which is undeniable. But uh, having read widely, though not correctly understood all what he read, I think he had some sense that going to Abrahamism is not a solution. And he wanted to stay within the Dharma fold, one may say. So he decided to go for his understanding of Buddhism, the Bhauddha Matha. And there have always been understandings of the older tradition, which may not necessarily be exactly what it is. Like, I would be very blunt in saying today's Vaidikas don't fully understand what the composers of the Veda said, but still they are very much aligned to it. And over the ages, there have been many different uh, interpretations of uh, the Shruti. So they, they all say that they are owing allegiance of, uh, or their, their allegiance is with the Shruti. Uh, so Madhva, uh, the founder of his tradition, how he looks at the Shruti is going to be very, or is very different from the way, say, uh, Shankara looks at it. But uh, they are still there. They oh, they say that we are uh, we uh, owe our allegiance to the Shruti. So likewise, you can say that uh, the Bhaimi uh, Mata of uh, Bhimrao. Bhimrao, it's his interpretation of the Buddhist tradition, which is a mixture of Western conditioning. And that's where the counter-religious aspect comes, the Brahmana as the enemy, and or more generally, the upper caste as the enemy, and the creation of some kind of a uniformity of the oppressed or the, um, the depressed classes. But we know from ethnography, like say, even in Maharashtra, the Mahang and Mahar, they are hardly uh, the same. And they were at, a, at conflict with each other and the conflict between them was probably much more intense than any of them had with a Brahmana or a Maratha. Uh, so, uh, and it's not that they were excluded from society either. That is, even in Shivaji's army, there were 
these uh, these jatis were very much there as uh, men who fought in his armies so uh, uh, they were part of the mainstream but one but there was a certain uh, what we may call the jati stratification which existed throughout india in various configurations uh, the stresses of islam and the english conquest certainly uh, aggravated the schisms which may have existed i think uh, the 12 fold jati system which existed in maharashtra and some variant thereof which existed all over india was actually a very symbiotic and uh, coherent system which survived uh, for a very long time it was all an issue of supplying labor and uh, so each of these jatis from the uh, village astrologer who may have been a brahmana down uh, to the mahar or the mang they all lived in the same village in a in a certain kind of symbiosis and uh, i believe this existed even in the tamil country in a variant form but it's not the same uh, 12 jatis but a similar constellation of jatis uh, so in order to break them away you need to give them that impulse and i think that impulse was entirely an external one from the english and uh, that was uh, that came say in maharashtra via phule the justice party in tamil nadu now this was internalized by ambedkar he bought all of that but uh, due to his reading i my understanding is he didn't want to go abramistic so he decided to stay within the dharma and he came up with his own bhaimi mata which was a interpretation of the bauda tradition now you know it's it's up to his followers and people who follow their religion to decide what course they must take but i think uh, really what's important from since i am a brahmana what's important from my perspective is that the hate is what needs to go if you want to follow your mata that's fine and you want to conduct your own rituals that your call so i would leave it at that right right <laughs> so anyways uh, there would have been a you know a longer uh, discussion on the specific uh, you know situation with the 18th and the 19th century which accentuated the uh, socio economic divide and you know in the, in the engaged in if you look at the you know communist historians they write mm. in detail about how land and capital over the 19th century especially during the uh, colonial rule where land mm-hmm. and capital was accumulated very strongly in the hands of a very few jatis and as a mm-hmm. result uh, mm-hmm. many of the and also because of disruption uh, mm-hmm. in the because of disruption in the uh, local uh, 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 you know economic structure a lot of the traditional occupations lost their value so as a result mm-hmm. you had these small uh, you know uh, large uh, land holding mm-hmm. and capitalist class Mm-hmm. Uh, which was composed of a small clique of uh, population and a large mass of you know uh, unskilled labor and uh, the mm-hmm. and all the you know social problems and economic problems which go which which arise from such a situation uh, where That's you have true. disparities yeah uh, i don't disagree with that 
uh, that's what I try to subsume in a very simple uh, description as the stressors of the English tyranny and uh, the Islamic tyranny before that. And I think the English tyranny should simply be seen as a continuation because there were certain practices like tax farming, which uh, were introduced in the Islamic period. And tax farming meant that it would allow for the, it would select, it was like a selective force for the emergence of this kind of land concentrating jati, uh, who would serve as the intermediary uh, to the tax collector. He would farm tax uh, in his locale and he would send it upward through the chain. And uh, at the same time, there was also a, other kinds of movements, which I think uh, caused this kind of divide where the military labor, uh, everyone used to be armed in India in the past. So the English, uh, wherever the English were gaining in ascendancy, the, uh, uh, the arming was decreased over time. I'm not saying it happened, especially uh, where they gained total control, they saw it appropriate to disarm the Indians to uh, reduce the, the chance of the rebellion. And as you know, after 1857, it was all over. So that is, they took over. And uh, so once, uh, so that I think accentuated the divide to quite a degree because one of the modes of upward mobility was to be in the arm, to be in a mercenary. So essentially all of Indian uh, military history going back to the Yavana invasion of Alexander of Macedon, uh, can be seen as a control of military labor uh, and uh, entrepreneurs who deal in military labor. And uh, so once that system was broken, I think it accentuated the degradation of uh, certain groups. Phule could have fought in 1857 as a warrior and it was a more it was a path for upward mobility but once that was shut off then you seek other avenues interesting interesting this is an aspect that uh, i hadn't thought of uh, so i should probably read further on this aspect any specific uh, pointers that uh, you would want our listeners uh, there, uh, there is a book by a western author i i don't remember its precise title nauker and military sepoy military labor something like that uh, I, mm -hmm. going through that book will give you a lot of additional references great, uh, great. i wrote an essay too on the earlier phase that is before the english uh, takeover of how uh, the pastoral castes were or jatis were a big uh, force in supplying military labor and it was a mode of upward mobility yes yes we can see that in the Palaikaran system in or the Polygar system in uh, yeah, Tamil yeah, Nadu. Absolutely. Yeah, many yeah. of them were actually uh, pastoral jatis. And uh, yes. today you will see a complete reversal in situation where the uh, pastoral, you know, Gola uh, prototype, mm. uh, Kambalat Nayakar yes. are actually at the lower end of the, uh, you know, uh, caste, uh, caste hierarchy. But mm. the earlier people, the Kammas and the Reddies who are at the lower end of the caste uh, spectrum are now at the top end of the caste spectrum because of uh, their entrepreneurship in military and policing. Absolutely. I think the Kammas and the Reddies, they were masters of uh, 
military labor management. And uh, the very fact that the so-called elite of Tamil Nadu, non-Viva, non-Brahmana elite is primarily coming from the Andhra Kama uh, groups is a tells the story. And uh, the whole fight back against Islam in the South was initiated by them like Vemareddi, Prolaya Nayaka, and the like. And they were able to fight back because they were managers of uh, armed labor, that is military, uh, mercenary. Uh, they were entrepreneurs in mercenary uh, labor. Okay, so uh, moving on to a very different aspect, you know, uh, one of the interesting things, uh, that we have noticed is that we have records of counter polemics to mm -hmm. you know uh, christian polemicists from uh, intellectuals like chattambi swamigal and mm -hmm. from arumuka navalar or even swami dayanand saraswati who gave yes. counter polemicists but these were and also tarka panchanana in tarka panchanana in bengal in bengal and, yeah and so maharashtra also Manga, had a, hmm? maharashtra also had a counter polemicist if i'm not wrong uh, it had a bunch of them. Um, I'm not immediately recalling their names, for which is sort of bad, but def definitely there was a, there was extensive counter polemics in in Maharashtra. Some of these took a tragic turn, but uh, that is, some of them were railing and ranting against uh, real science. Uh, which contradicted their scientific understanding, like the Virodhas, which were written in Maharashtra against the heliocentric hypothesis. And they wanted to reinstate the geocentric model. Uh, so that I would uh, characterize that as wasted uh, labor, but uh, there was a broad polemical tradition. Yeah. Right. In, but but we see that only in the second half of the 19th century onwards, and this counter polemicist tradition seems to have stopped right uh, towards the time of independence. But before that, when we have, it's not as though the, you know, Christians and Muslims came to India only in the 19th century. There's been a long tradition of them coming and engaging in, uh, you know, criticism of religion and polemics. Where were the counter polemicists before the 19th century? Were they even there? What was happening? I often get this question and I don't know if I can answer it to the satisfaction of people who want to hear that, yes, we had such a flourishing tradition because I cannot show uh, texts to say that, hey, here is this flourishing tradition. On the other hand, from all what I've seen, I think it was not, uh, not, it was not zero. So we have to go back really uh, far in time to the period of the Ghaznavid invasions and uh, the earliest, so the Arab inroads into Western India were very limited. Uh, at least that's my opinion. They managed to conquer the Sim. There was the great battle of Rajasthan where the Arab uh, ambitions were completely sunk. Uh, but Indian thought did in infiltrate into the Arab uh, intellectual world. And that's how you see the emergence of these free thinkers in the Islamic world. And these free thinkers extensively cite uh, the 
doctrines and ideas which they say come from the barahima now this barahima is their term for the brahmanas and uh, many of the statements which we see preserved in their free thinker literature we can clearly say have a hindu origin because they are talking of samkhya and uh, utilizing the samkhya framework in their polemics and they say that these barahima taught these polemics against uh, the abrahamistic religions and there were counter uh, attacks on that that is there were they wrote counter polemics against these barahima polemics brought in by the free thinkers and you see that not just with the muslims but also jews and christians so they were really threatened by it uh, and one of the things which seems to have uh, threatened them is the samkhya idea that uh, there is a consciousness which exists separately and it unites with matter and so that opens the door for uh, two things that non human organisms are conscious they have consciousness and the possibility of reincarnation punarjanma so uh, both of these are fatal for those abrahamistic uh, religions and so they spent a lot of time trying to refute so what this implies is that there was an old tradition of polemics when islam was encountered now what we uh, hear from the islamic uh, adventurous scholar who came along with uh, uh, mahmud ghaznavi is uh, Uh, al biruni is that uh, the hindus did not want to talk to the muslims he is very explicit about it so i think the gaznavid invasions marked a period when the trauma was of the other was so strong that, that it was not an issue of polemics anymore it was a life and death struggle and when it transitioned to this life and death struggle uh, it was viewed more as a disease or uh, a locus or pestilence uh, you almost get that vibe i can't uh, i don't remember the exact words of the shloka but you get the vibe in say vedanta deshikas uh, shloka uh, the abhiti stava i believe to vishnu where he's rather the invader is named along with other things as a cause of bhaya which needs to be repaired so there's this trend i think the experience was so traumatic and it was so dramatic uh, in a sense like the the current wave of the pandemic hitting india where uh, you some of the analysis is uh, just put aside you're looking for survival and i think uh, that sh- the shift to that mode happened uh, somewhere between the gaznavid and the gurid invasions and it lasted all the way but is it that no polemics happened i think we have evidence that there was a lot of polemical activity but it was just not composed as a text and there's the scholar from canada called arvin sharma who has written a good book where he summarizes some of these things 
we know that there were hindus in delhi during the time of feroz shah tughlaq a monstrous tyrant and uh, ibrahim lodi who were converting mohammedans to uh, back to uh, probably it was garwapasi i don't know if the turks if there were turks who were being converted to the hindu religion and we hear of the same uh, during aurangzeb's reign and uh, so there were these guys who were arguing sometimes in flawed ways but nevertheless arguing against islam and trying to bring back people and two of them got emulated uh, along with their images of the of the gods by the sultans in delhi and i think aurangzeb demolished the schools and shut down those in his reign but on the other hand uh, during the reign of akbar and uh, sarvesh tiwari whom you may know from uh, twitter had written some essays on this and i would ask people to look it up and there's a lot more material on that uh, the akbar held these interreligious discussions and there is the record of brahmanas routinely defeating the islamic scholars jainas too there's a jaina who wrote extensive polemics there's an iranian uh, zoroastrian who wrote extensive uh, counter polemics of course he was arguing against the hindus and jainas too in addition to islam uh, but we do have the record that akbar was swayed by these uh, polemics because his own biographer says that he says all kinds of bad things against the religion of mohammed and he's now influenced by these uh, heretics so uh, all this goes to say that there was a polemical tradition but it did not express itself or it as a vigorous textual culture now the traditional acharyas in southern india like in shringagiri or uh, the vaishnava acharyas i don't think they saw the abrahamistic religions as something which fits within their axioms as uh, something to even uh, make arguments about because after all our tradition is like geometric proofs you have some axioms you make arguments now until charvaka you can accommodate them but uh, these traditions were seen as so uh, different that uh, i don't think they saw it as something to write polemics against but we still know that they inspired the vijayanagaran kings ramadasa in maharashtra inspired shivaji to relentlessly fight the blecha so it's not that they didn't recognize the other i think they saw it as primarily a military issue and i think for most part the struggle against islam was a military issue because as long as military victories could be gained the hindus could reestablish their uh, traditions <clears throat> now uh, during the uh, splint splint the fragments of the bahmanid sultanate like the nizam shahi uh, the deccan uh, you have uh, hindus who were trying to work with the sultans they would write uh, not polemics but they would try to uh, engage the sultan to let them practice their own ways 
So uh, once you are inside an Islamic kingdom, I don't think you had the opportunity of polemics. If you were writing something which was seriously offensive, you could lose your head. And uh, if you are in a Hindu kingdom like Vijayanagara or the Hindavi Swarajya, you don't really need to write polemics anymore because the objective was to sweep out Islam from India. There was, that was Shivaji was quite clear about that. So it, it, I think this dynamic has to be kept in mind uh, to explain why there was not that much polemical effort. And only in a case like Akbar's court in this post-jihadi years, uh, where the Ghazi had now sort of uh, become more apostate, uh, you could have the space for such polemics. And this is seen elsewhere too, like uh, Gemistos Platon, whom I mentioned earlier, he had a Jewish uh, uh, associate known as Eliseus, who had become a heathen, and he had reinitiated the Iranian form of fire worship in his petition. So the Osman Sultan caught him and uh, emulated him, a fate very similar to our Brahmanas in Delhi, who uh, converted these guys back to the Hindu cause. So uh, I think there was a very real danger once you were in the Islamic, uh, uh, under the Sharia. Uh, and once you are out of it, if you are in a Hindu Swarajya, the need for it was very limited. I think this somewhat uh, mirrors the present day situation where, you know, people who live in uh, Bangladesh or uh, Pakistan and the few, mm -hmm. the very few Hindus who actually live in Bangladesh or Pakistan do not have any right. opportunity to, uh, you know, engage in counter polemics because they're busy just keeping themselves alive, basically. Absolutely. They lose while, their head if they wrote something. Yeah. Better. While uh, if you're in Hindu-majority India, uh, you're already, you know, on the back foot because you're being, uh, you know, accused of majoritarianism and you're accused of right. so many other things. So you really don't want to broach the topic of, you know, polemics, counter-polemics. Uh, oh, it's very dangerous in India. That is... Uh, I, I know this from my school and college days where I used to be very open and uh, it would, uh, people would, it was not, it was not the counter-religions, it was our own, the, exactly. the Swapaksha, who would be exactly. saying, how are you saying such unsecular stuff? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's the, you know, uh, if you look at it, uh, you will say, you know, we are also, we get along so well together. And the typical, uh, you know, as Kunrad Elst uh, put it elsewhere, the, you know, the Hindu knows everything about everything. Right? The, <laughs> the, Hindu will tell, the Hindu will tell you why a man who has spent, you know, 14 years studying the uh, Quran and the Hadith is wrong yeah. to blow himself up. And he, right. how he really didn't understand his religion right, correctly. And right. Uh, the Hindu will also say, uh, we'll also teach uh, how the Shankaracharya got Advaita completely wrong. So Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, I have seen this, like a guy trying to explain to me how Jinnah, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, misunderstood Islam. 
So, <laughs> so that's I mean yeah. uh, I you know probably I don't know whether it is a effect of uh, you know subversion or in biological terms whether it is the effect of an uh, you know civilizational infection or the effect of civilizational senescence. Uh, the senescence part is a whole discussion in itself, which I think, given that we have gone on for a long time, I don't know yeah. if we want to break into that. Uh, yeah. But uh, to use the biological analogy, the way I see it, which is quite apt to the current pandemic, is the inflammatory response. Right. So the immune system has a mechanism to detect invasive organisms. And once it detects it, it mounts an attack against it. Now, a part of this attack, because some bacteria and all viruses, they live inside cells of your own body. So the way you have to get rid of them is by killing your own cells. The infected cell has to die. So the body has certain cells which actually inject mo molecules, proteins, which cause the cell which has received that injection to commit suicide. So once it commits suicide, it brings down the virus or the bacterium which is living inside the cell uh, and pre prevents the infection from spreading. So actually killing the infected uh, cells is, the, is a very central line of defense across life. That's how all organisms deal with pathogens. Uh, now, if this process goes out of control, then you'll start killing cells, even if they're not infected. So you have a runaway uh, reaction, which uh, against your own cells, where you're causing them to do su commit suicide, even though they don't carry a virus or a bacterium inside them. So this kind of a response seems to happen even at the civilizational level. So you have the invader, you have the military uh, response against the invader, like 1857 was the last great war we fought. Uh, it was a failure, uh, but it, the failure I think was not so much the actual military defeat as much as the inflammatory response it left in its aftermath where there was some loss of the self, non-self uh, discrimination or even the recognition of where and what the infection is. And uh, that is continuing. So there is a reaction against the self. Everything Hindu is seen as negative. That was the cause of the defeat in 1857. That was the cause of our inferiority to the English uh, which resulted in us being ruled by them. Uh, it's, a, it's a trauma which we still carry. And uh, I don't think we have really come out of it. And secularism can be seen as one kind of uh, offshoot of that. That is secularism used in the Indian sense. Right, right. That's a very interesting take on the topic. Uh, 